0: You are listening to Microchurches, a podcast for missionaries and leaders living out their God-given calling through this small expression of the church. This podcast is meant to encourage, equip, and contribute to the overall discussion of this smaller way. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. You are listening to Microchurches, a podcast for people brave enough to be small. This is your host, Tommy Wilkerson, and in this episode, we are talking about the phases of microchurch development. And so I've been joined by Brian Sanders for the last couple of episodes, and he joins me again for this one. And so in this particular episode, we are talking about that third phase, uh, which is codification. Uh, essentially, if the last phase was about failure and trying things and learning from them, this is the moment where things actually start to work. Uh, am I right in that assessment?
1: Maybe they were always working a little bit. I, I think it's, I think it's um, maybe what makes this, this feel like its own phase or, or experience is that we begin to understand and put language on mm. where God is working. We begin to make sense of it, um, form some kind of repeatable patterns, mm. you know, that, that we ought to do that again, yeah. you know, <laughs> probably all, all along. They're sprinkled in grace, you know, little experiences of like, yeah, God was really there. That was was great. But it's when it starts happening over and over again in a certain way or a certain moment, that pattern, discovering that pattern and then looking at each other and saying, is that this? Giving it a name, a label, whatever. That's, I'd say, you, you stepped into this codification thing.
0: Ah, okay. That's helpful. And I I mean, we talked a little bit about in the last conversation how, you know, iteration is where you start to see the ecclesial minimum sort of come together a little bit. It's a little amorphous and immature and not quite fully formed yet. But it it seems that at this point where you are operating and you have repeatable patterns, maybe there's a, I don't know, I don't want to say a calendar rhythm, but maybe uh, there's a way that the ecclesial minimum is very clear. Like, you know how you're doing, how worship works in your community, how community works for you all, uh, how you're engaging in mission, what's the place, the, all that. It seems like it kind of comes together in this, this phase. And so I'm curious, um, maybe a little bit about, yeah, the role of disciple making, leadership development, Uh, It seems like at this point, if this is really where things are sort of coming together, there's a lot that could happen in this phase. So the emergence of new leaders, new callings being birthed, both for people coming, but also for the leader itself. Uh, Yeah, just kind of tease out some of that with me. I realize that's not really a question, but I throw it out there.
1: Yeah. So if, if you... If you enter into a season we talked about before, we're just trying things, you're just experimenting, then what you don't have in that time is a deep sense of conviction about this is the right thing to do or the right way to do this, mm-hmm. right? So in a sense, the iteration phase is a convictionless environment. Now, that's not to say that you don't mm-hmm. have deep convictions about what the gospel is or about love or – in other words, iteration is is an environment shaped by values, mm-hmm. not by tactics. Yeah, so you just know we're just we're just here to love people. We want to glorify Jesus. We want to be a team. We want to do this thing He's put in our heart to love and help these people somehow. But it it in a sense it, iteration only really works if you hold off on tactical convictions. Hmm. You know, if you say we're open. Yeah. We're where you're probably going to struggle is you say this is exactly the way it ought to be done. This is why I'm not a big fan of taking other people's algorithms or their, their, their approach to ministry. Like I bought your, your, you know, your four stage discipleship plan and I'm just going to use that with my friends or use that, or whatever. I think that that can work and it can be fine. Um, you know, I like, I like, um, Roger Martin's stuff out of, uh, I think he was University of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wrote a book called "Design of Business." He talks about the 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 sort of s- cycle of of how we create these repeatable patterns, and you start with uh, what he calls mystery, like mm-hmm. a, wick, a wicked problem. And that's all. Microchurches start with that. All microchurch churches start with how are we going to reach this community or this group of people? It's just how will I reach my neighborhood or how will I how will I create a church for for kids with disabilities or something? You know, I, I, it's like an impossible problem. Mm-hmm. It's a mystery of how to do that. He says. Then when you iterate and work on it, you begin to come up with the second bit. Is he says heuristics? Heuristics are like rules of thumb and mm-hmm. this is what we're talking about in when when you can codify or codify something you 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 can say this tends to work mm-hmm. you, you begin to discover these heuristics these rules of thumb that when we do this people like it when we do this people hate it you know <laughs> uh, when we throw a block party on the 4th of July people come when we throw a block party on Christmas morning no one comes you know mm-hmm. it's like these are just discovery from trying things mm-hmm. right when we throw a block party and we don't have alcohol, this is the effect. When we throw a block party and we have some beer on hand, this is the effect. It's, you see what I mean you're learning yeah. about your neighborhood. You're learning about or when we throw a block party and we we, we don't have food. Mm. Nobody comes. We throw a block party and we have we have, you know, so and so do barbecue. A lot of people come. So mm. then you, you can you can the heuristic is food helps, beer helps. Mm. Right, it brings people in. That's a that's a rule of thumb you begin to discover, Uh, or even even something like when we throw block parties, nobody ever really enters into deep conversations with us, or we throw block parties and nobody ever really comes to the deeper discussions that we're having in the home. Mm. And so here's here's a different kind of reflection in the iteration. The block party is wildly successful, but it never it never bears spiritual fruit. Right. But actually, when there's some kind of crisis in the neighborhood and we show up and we help, those seem to have deeper spiritual conversations and people tend to come into this deeper thing about God. So that's also something that you codify. You say block parties don't really work for us. Mm-hmm. That's not our thing. We can, we can gather a lot of people. It's a lot of time. It's wasted, whatever, or the opposite. You're, yeah. you're figuring out your neighborhood, your people, whatever. But once you once you sort of, begin to see those and discover those those places that are working or effective or whatever they form convictions mm. and those convictions become something you say we just it, it goes beyond just trying or 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 iterating or experimenting it becomes like actually we believe this is the right thing to do in our neighborhood hmm. you know and we're 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 kind of always going to do this yeah and i think where you see god at work because you've tried a lot of things mm. and you weren't sure where God would be working. So you were open and you were experimental and you were humble and you were brave and you were creative. Mm. Out of that beautiful cocktail of courage and creativity comes real breakthrough kind of discoveries. Mm. Like when we have these kind of conversations with people, like we – let's just go back to that neighborhood issue. When we have block parties, that produces almost no spiritual fruit. But when we do these one-on-one support days or something where we come on a neighbor and just help them at their house and or we invite people over for dinner or whatever, and we say well, that is real breakthroughs in people's lives, that becomes a conviction. Mm. And that conviction says this is what we do. We do life-on-life one on one, we talk to people about deep things about their life. We don't just party. Now that's I'm not I'm not making a, a value yeah. statement in those things. I'm just using it as an example. So those convictions then begin to shape you because you, you see that when we do these things, these certain practices faithfully, with all our hearts, in love, invoking the presence of Jesus, people come to faith and disciples are formed. So the real experience of codification is also disciple-making. Mm-hmm. You start seeing people put their faith in Jesus, follow Jesus. Don't just come to your stuff right. or appreciate you or have interesting or good conversations with you. But they begin to make that turn away from you. You you aren't just a person or a friend in their life who's religious or spiritual or whatever that you become a voice crying in the wilderness, pointing them, making straight the way for the Lord. And so their relationship now is with Jesus. I love, I, John, I just have John the Baptist on my mind, where, where where John says, the one I told you about who who comes after me because he was before me, when he shows up, the one whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, when he shows up, you know, he, I baptize you with water, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mm. And when you finally meet him, you're going to realize he was the one all along that I was talking about. That everything I was doing up to this point—preaching, bringing people out into the wilderness, doing water baptisms, calling for repentance—all that was just so that you could meet this person. And then, true, true to his word, when they met that person, he said, "Go, go with him. Mm-hmm. You know, go with him." Yeah. And this, this is exactly what happens in. This this third phase where people start going with Jesus. Hmm. They start, they start, they're stopped coming just to be with you, yeah, or to have cool conversations with you, or because you care for them, or because you're helping them, or because you're serving meals, or because you're providing a service for their community or whatever, and they start coming for Jesus. They start entering into a relationship with Jesus. And again, discipleship for me, as you know, discipleship for me is not you are my disciple. And I have a bunch of people that I'm discipling, quote unquote. I just really that. I I'm not I'm not against that. I understand it. I, I don't I don't want to pick a fight here with something that's good and godly. But I just I don't think that quite captures the nuance of discipleship in the sense that what it means to be a disciple is to be a disciple of Jesus, not of right. me. And that actually I prefer the forerunner metaphor that we're meant to sort of just lead people into discipleship with someone else, not with us. Yeah. That we're not disciplers. And to make a disciple just means to lead people into a relationship with Jesus, mm. where he, he becomes their teacher and they become his disciple. And when that starts to happen, I think you're in this third phase, and you've got some people that have come to faith, you've got some people that are now walking with Jesus, either with you or not with you. They may stay in your little microchurch community, or they may they may drift off into, in, into other Christian community spaces. Mm. Totally fine. Yeah. Totally great. But you are beginning to see, to this population that God has sent you, you're beginning to see people become disciples of Jesus. That, you have convictions about what you're doing tactically, and those convictions are bearing fruit in discipleship. Now, it doesn't, and we're not talking about hundreds or dozens even of people, it could be one or two or three people, it could be one person, maybe not one, let's say two people that have come to faith because of what you're doing, and those convictions are producing disciples, you're in this phase.
0: Hmm. awesome and then maybe part of that disciple making journey uh or just the journey of a disciple is calling like they hear their assignment and the, the thing that they're meant to do whether that's with your community or with somebody else uh yeah i i just i we have talked about the missionary journey and the role of the microchurch in some of those earlier phases and calling being one of those things that microchurches, they, they have a, a prominent enough role in the helping uh, a new believer or a, current, uh, a potentially missional Christian, a missional Christian, hear what's their assignment. Um,
1: well, and, bef- and before they have that sense of m- their own individual personal calling, they're a part of a community which is missionary. So if, right. if you come to faith in a missionary community, a microchurch, that has convictions about how to reach a certain population of people of which you were a part, mm-hmm. something happens in you that is formed in you that you understand just implicitly, you understand this is what it means to be Christian. Mm-hmm. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And this is what it means to be the church. Mm-hmm. A lot of things which we feel we have to train into people because they're a part of conventional church forms. You don't have to do that in a church. It's baked in from day one. So having to convince people that they need to step out in mission is something we do because we have erroneously defined the church as a worship gathering. Mm. And because we've done that, we've made that error, frankly. Loads of people have come to church every week, have joined, have become members of churches, have given money to their churches, and never once set foot in the field of mission.
0: Right.
1: So then, for those of us that sort of work in that sphere of church work or whatever, they think, how do I get my people to be missional? How do I get my people to understand, to, to invite people or share the gospel? And so we create all of these, we contort ourselves to, to, to develop curriculums and to entice people to come and learn how to share their faith or how to care about somebody or how to be missional or whatever. And the truth is, from day one in a micro church, this is just the air you breathe.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. So I was on the block. I was I was in this place far from God, and you came to me. You you came to me where I was. And this is all I know about the church.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. So if one day they end up going to a big worship service somewhere, they might just think, well, this is cool. This is neat. This is this is encouraging. This is inspiring. But would they would they walk out of that worship service and say that I just went to a church? No,
0: mm-hmm. they wouldn't. Yeah,
1: if it's done well, they'd probably really appreciate it and enjoy it. It could it could definitely be, you know, catalyst for their faith and growth and whatever. Be a good thing, in other words. But they wouldn't they wouldn't make that that equivocation that error of thinking I just went to church, mm-hmm. you know, because well the it wasn't. It wasn't missional. It wasn't incarnational. Right. It wasn't where non-believers are, you know. So even when we think about what makes disciples already baked into the microchurch, you have the – when people do come to faith, when people do become disciples, their discipleship is already – has a leg up, I guess you could say. It's already – it's already uh, has has built into it. Essential elements which we have found elusive mm. in our current traditional form of church.
0: Mm. So maybe we've talked about this a little bit with the disciple making peace and kind of helping, kind of landing on convictions, uh, all the things that kind of get baked into this phase. But I mean, what would you say is maybe the key work of the leader in this phase? Is it? Yeah, I, I yeah, I mean, I'll just leave it out. Well,
1: so so again, thinking about Roger Martin's taxonomy, you know, he's he's going to say you you start with mystery, you move towards heuristic, start discovering these these rules of thumb, these things that work, and then you move to what he calls algorithms, and algorithms are a repeatable process that kind of always produces the same result. And so again, this is, this is what's happening in this phase where you, what I'm calling convictions, Martin would call algorithms. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know I'm I'm saying don't buy someone else's algorithms. You've got to earn your own algorithms. So 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 you can't you shouldn't jump ahead to codification. You shouldn't jump ahead to convictions mm-hmm. that you borrowed from somebody else. So right. you 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 didn't go through the ideation phase of the team. You didn't do iteration. You just started with somebody else's algorithm. This is how a lot of people would start a small group or would start a missional community. Mm. Somebody else else perfected the technique, Mm. right? And told you, this is what you do. You go to a quick training and then you start essentially in phase three. And of course, if that worked and made disciples, that'd be great. But as we've talked about before, it doesn't make you a disciple. Mm. And this whole journey, like, in 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 Martin's approach this whole journey from mystery to heuristic to algorithm is in my mind the the journey of a leader of discipleship themselves so when you when you're in that place of mystery you're crying out to God saying what do we do we're this is too much for us this is too big mm. we don't know and when you when you feel that profound sense of desperation when you when you when you know yourself to be a novice, you know, it, it does something inside of us. It drives us to God in a certain way. And then when he does speak, and when when he says, just try this, and so we try it, there's that all of that is full of God. It's full of the presence of God. And then little miracles that happen here and there. And then you start seeing repeated miracles in a sense, like This always seems to work or be effective. And that's that those heuristics then become algorithms. We say, you know what? This is what we do. Mm -hmm. We do, we do, I'm just going to make this up here. (laughs) We do, we do beer and barbecue, (laughs) block parties. We, we follow that up with like a clean up the neighborhood day. We offer, counseling to couples we invite people into our home we share jesus in the home people come to faith this is how this is our little algorithm Mm -hmm. and we just do this and people come to faith this way and people become disciples of jesus this way um and each context i think is going to discover a different pattern right and going to see the face of jesus in that missionary context and in the journey from mystery to heuristic to algorithm in a totally different way. But then when you come up with your little algorithm for your community, you own it. Mm. You know, you say, let's do this. Yeah. And let's keep doing this. We're still learning. We're still open. But not in the same way we were in iteration, mm. actually. Yeah. We're doubling down on where we've seen God work. Mm. It's, it, you know... I mean, Jesus, what is it, Luke 10, you know, Jesus makes it pretty clear when you go into a community, you look for that kind of person of peace, you enter their home, eat what they offer you, bless the home, say, okay, our peace will fall in this place, and you do ministry out of that spot, right? And if people reject you, you leave and move on. I mean, built into Jesus's approach is experimentation. These people received us, these people didn't. Mm. Okay, we tried with you, you said no. We tried with you, you said no. We tried with you, you said no. We tried with you, you said yes. So we stick with that. Mm. He's saying basically, as long as you're there in that city, you stay in that house. They're the ones. So, both, I mean, built into that approach is both experimentation that not everyone's gonna, not everything's gonna work and not everyone's gonna receive you. That's totally to be expected and so the people that say no drop that. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to keep coming back to those same people that said no because we're stubborn or something. We double down on the people that were open and the little sphere, the little network around those people. That's where we'll work from.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And in the same way, I think we discover both people and place and technique that where we see just there's peace.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right? The the people are open. They they their hearts are warm towards Jesus and towards us. So stay there. Double down on that. Create a conviction out of that. Turn that into a little, for lack of a better word, algorithm for your missional community, for your micro church, and then keep doing that because disciples will come out of that. Now, if, if, if people stop responding to in faith and disciples are no longer being made by those convictions, then revisit them. Mm-hmm. You can always try. You can always experiment again. You know how to do that. Yeah. But where you see something working, you don't keep. In other words, you don't you don't say, "Well, this works," but eh, it's still just an experiment, let's move on. Right. The whole point of an experiment is to discover what works. Yeah. The whole point of a hypothesis is to come to uh, a, a sort of research um, eureka moment. Yeah. Where you say, "This is it. This is this is the answer we were looking for."
0: And I love that you mentioned that because I think one of the thing, a, a few things occur to me as we talk about this phase one, and they're not unrelated, but one is um, metrics. So I imagine somewhere in this phase, there is uh, you start to craft metrics like you can kind of see, OK, well, if we know what works, we can begin to see how we're doing from year to year or from semester to semester or whatever. And so helping people understand, okay, well, how do we even craft healthy metrics for our context? Because every context is different. Uh, and then in the instance where you realize, okay, actually, maybe we're noticing this downward turn because mission is art. It is, uh, dynamic. There's no guarantee that what you land on is going to last always and forever. But there, there are, a, there's a life cycle to microchurches and even a life cycle to the approaches that we take and so um yeah how do you even be open to to that the the when you realize your rhythms are getting stale so yeah metrics and when you realize things are getting stale
1: well metric obviously metrics are a double edged sword aren't they i mean i think i would be a a proponent a fan of metrics but i also would be a you know a naysayer i think i think they're they're helpful and i think they're terrible at the mm-hmm. same time um I guess, I guess what I would say, we should measure something. We should pay attention to what's working and where God is there, if, if for no other reason than so that we can just be more committed to those clear those clear convictions that are discovered through counting, mm. which is what we're talking about. But a couple things I would say about metrics. One, don't let other people determine your metrics. Mm. Um, don't let the network or the church you're a part of, the macro church you're a part of, every... Every microchurch has a context, and that context is utterly unique, partly because you as a group of leaders and committed people in that missionary work are unique, but also because every place is different. It just is. And part of the reason why God has called you and sent you to that particular group of people is because he sees them as unique and he's sent you in particular you're the only people called to those people so respect that respect that contextualization by saying okay lord what do you want us to count mm-hmm. what are we learning that su- what does success mean to us you know it could be i don't know maybe maybe in the in the in the sort of I don't know, let's let's say let's say you're in the Arab world or something like that. You might think, look, if, if people are just willing to have an open conversation with me with me about Jesus, the person of Jesus, I see that as a win. Mm-hmm. I see that as grace. I see this as something good. And so that's what I count. And other people say, we well, need to count baptisms. And you're like, if I count baptisms, I'll have one baptism every decade. <laughs> I'll just quit or mm-hmm. just crawl up in the fetal position every night and think I'm a failure as, as a missionary. So you have to be the one I think faithfully to god to, to sort of ask lord what what is what does obedience look like for you to your heart and mind to the context that i'm in you know yeah. and so every every kind of church should be allowed to define their own metrics but you probably should have some mm-hmm. you probably should determine what for us is showing that we're being faithful to the thing we've called to, we've been called to do and are we doing it as much as we should or once were or whatever um, the other thing i would say about metrics is is sort of to do with the law of unintended consequences you know that that it when you when you choose to measure something when you make it important when you isolate one thing and you make it important it can often have unintended consequences towards other things mm. it, it, in other words when you say let's count this you can get a lot of other things wrong by accident so a, a great example of this i think i think it was a a, a story out of out of Soviet Russia, where they had they had uh, nail factories, they were making nails, mm. and so they said, okay, we're gonna we want to we're gonna pay the workers based on the the number of nails that they produce. Okay, so if you produce this much volume of nails, this many nails, we're gonna pay you a certain amount of money. So they made a lot of tiny nails. Oh. <laughs> you know, they said we're gonna pay you by the number of nails you produce. So they literally made like. Staple-sized nails, <laughs> and they just made millions of them. You yeah. Know? So the government or whatever they said, okay, well this is not that's not what we meant at all. You know, you've totally misunderstood. We don't want all the nails to be tiny, and so we're going to pay you by weight. So they switched up the metric, and they said we're going to we're going to determine that you're doing your job if you've done this much mass weight. And guess what they did, Tommy? They started making massively huge nails, like railroad <laughs> ties, spike size nails nails they're the size of a table or something like that so they're just like oh we'll just make 50 nails this month but they'll all be the the weight of a car you know (laughs) and again this is unintended consequences you say we're going to measure it this way often almost always when you do that you're you're gonna you're gonna twist or contort Mm -hmm. toward that thing and miss potentially other things this is also called um the cobra effect which I think comes from—I don't know if it's apocryphal—but it's a story I think that I heard that comes out of India, where there was a cobra problem in mm. in the towns, and th- this would be a problem, by the way, to have cobras uh, loose in your town or in your cities. And so the government came in and said, "Look, we, we, we need to get rid of these cobras. So what we'll do is we'll pay people for every cobra they kill. You know, you bring us the hide or whatever, and we will give you a you know bounty." essentially for every cobra that you kill. Well, guess what people did? They started breeding cobras. <laughs> they started breed they made more cobras yeah. so they could kill them and bring them in for money. Yeah. Right? Well, of course the government goes, "Well, that's not what we meant at all. The point was to eradicate cobras, not to create more cobras." So, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to stop doing it. And guess what happened? They all released all their cobra farms. And ended up having 10 times the amount of Cobras they had when they began. Mm. So just beware right? that when you choose one thing over the fullness of the life or the way of Jesus in your community, you say, this is going to be the thing we count. And we're going to, in a sense, we're, we're saying we value this above all other things, mm. right? That it's possible that that will have unintended consequences in your community. So even that, be, hold it loosely. Mm. I do think it's important to count the things that matter to you, the things that you feel God has said, please be faithful in this way, in this area. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to that and count that. But also keep your eyes open to the unintended consequences that that might produce. Yeah, yeah.
0: And so with that, uh, yeah, when your rhythms just go stale, it's, uh, you know, I mean, we a number of – Maybe last year, a couple of years ago, our community we went through reappearing church, Mark Sayer stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and just talking about renewal cycles and just there are moments where just cold orthodoxy—it's just you're you're doing all the right stuff, but it just doesn't carry the same weight or resonance as it did before. And so there needs to be a renewal of sorts. And I and so there's a way that that is true of like spiritual vitality. But I'm even just thinking about like the practices of a microchurch, like you're doing all the things that you used to, but it's just it doesn't hit the same way. And so, yeah, what what do you do with that? What's the role of reevaluating, experimenting again, uh, even innovation in this phase? Uh, I just love to unpack that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't – I probably would not – I know that phenomenon. I know the, the experience you're talking about. But I wouldn't put that in this third phase. I don't think it happens here. I think what you're experiencing in this third phase is just like this stuff works and this is great. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're you're kind of – it's a honeymoon. It's, you're top of the world, you know. You kind of feel legit finally. Yeah. You, know, you feel like, man, we're a real. We're a real microchurch mm-hmm. or we're a real church. You know, we are – we're delivering the goods, the sacramental life of the kingdom of God to the people around us. It's a it's a high point. Yeah. You know. And actually, you might get a little ahead of yourself and you might you might get a little big headed and think, you know, we could, we could, we could teach other people how to do this, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that's even bad necessarily. Of course, it could be if it's driven by ego. But I would say then this, the fourth phase that we would look at. This this sort of growing and sending and and, and a, a kind of back door, mm. where you're allowing people not just to come in but to go out. Yeah. Um, I think that is a part of what keeps us from stagnation. Hmm. That that sort of I mean to to stick with the metaphor of kind of a flowing conduit of 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 a river or water flowing that you need you need something coming in. But you also need something going out. And I think when we hit that that sort of stagnation, it's because one of those um, one of the ends of that conduit is being blocked. Mm-hmm. So you're either either nothing new or fresh is coming in, yeah. or nobody's being allowed to leave. No one's being allowed to go off and do new and fresh and different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would probably put this third phase in the middle of that flowing conduit. Hmm. Well, to the right of the middle of that flowing conduit. Um, but but the conversation that we probably will have in the next one where we where we need to talk about what does it look like to release people yeah. out of your microchurch, to do new and different things, creative things, really is um, a, a secret, I guess you could say, to a, a, a kind of evergreen – Microchurch Mm. (laughs) that that never feels stale, never feels stagnating because it's not stagnating because there's always an influx of new people and there's always fresh, beautiful things coming out of it. Now, having said that, can we personally sometimes feel that this rhythm no longer feels fresh to me? Mm -hmm. So the microchurch, let's say it's functioning, healthy, new things are coming in. People are, are leaving to go do other things. But you personally start to feel like, yeah, you know, it's not challenging to me anymore, or I've just done it this way. That often is not a reflection or an assessment of the microchurch itself. It's an assessment of you. Mm-hmm. And what that might mean, if I was just talking to you as, a, as an advisor or friend, I might say, you know, maybe time for you to have a new challenge. Mm-hmm. You know, to you to be leading something else. Yeah. And by the way, when you feel that way, that probably also means it's time for someone else younger than you or who's come after you to take over your spot. Mm-hmm. That 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 sense of like maybe this maybe there's something new and challenging that I need to go try or go and do also means you don't just do that for yourself, you also do it for everybody. You do it for the, the young guy who whose spot you're in. Mm-hmm. You know? And so that that uh, discontentment, that that restlessness that you can feel. And again, presuming that there's nothing unhealthy or dysfunctional about the microchurch itself, right. let's just say that, it, that it's flowing correctly, but instead it's just no longer as meaningful to you. It sure. could be that you're wired for a new challenge or that God is actually whispering in your ear, come with me, I have a new thing for you to do. Um, And you probably ought to listen to that because if you don't, you're, 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 you're taking up somebody else's seat. Yeah.
0: I mean, there's, uh, there's things I want to talk about in the tension of expansion and all of that. Uh, but we'll save that for our next conversation. So maybe this is a good place to cap this one. So if you're listening and you're wondering, what do I do from here? If you've listened to the other episodes, you already know, I'm going to point you to Brian's book, Microchurches. We'll include the link in the description. Uh, thank you so much for listening. This has been Microchurches. Until next time.